Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. So, hey from California, Tamar. Hey, Mike. So, today we have just a phenomenal guest. I'm so excited. But I thought I would tell a little story about uh, something I did yesterday. Because um, I, I visited the company Just Foods. Um, it's, you know, now almost a decade old. It was founded by a couple guys who wanted to save chickens, um, maybe save the world, and they started making plant-based eggs. They've been incredibly successful. They now control 99% of the plant-based eggs market. But after doing this for a few years, they decided that's not going to save the world. You know, egg-laying chickens, you know, they're a big problem, but we got to do something about meat. And rather than do plant-based meat, like we're seeing with Impossible and Beyond, they decided they were going to do cultivated meat. They were going to grow meat from actual animal cells in a lab, and then eventually in big fermentation tanks, like a, like a brewery. Mm-hmm. And a crazy idea. It's never, never been done. And uh, so yesterday, I was at Just Foods. And I got to eat some chicken. I'm so jealous. <laughs> Not just no. So I had been there a few years ago, and I got to eat a chicken nugget. Not so jealous about a chicken nugget. Which is cool, but, you know, you've seen a lot of these plant-based stuff, and they're, you know, they do the nuggets. I got to actually eat fried chicken and a chicken breast. And it was, it was an incredible experience. It, uh, it tasted like chicken. Because it was chicken. <laughs> and, and this is something we've been talking about doing an episode about forever. So I'm very excited. Today we are actually going to be talking about, you know, they used to call it lab-grown meat, in vitro meat, um, clean meat, they called it for a while. Now we're, uh, we're talking about cultivated meat, cell-cultured meat, and uh, can't buy it yet in the stores, but it's, you know... Awesome to save the world if it happens. That's a big if. And we are going to talk about cell-based meat and all of the ifs involved with our friend Hank Green, who has been good enough to come and appear on Climavores. Hank explains things. He explains things with clarity and with wit and with verve. And he is one half of the Vlog Brothers, who you guys may know. And he also has his own epic YouTube channel, which explains things from like misinformation to sphincters. <laughs> and I think he has single handedly raised the scientific literacy quotient of the American public all by himself. And in his spare time, he does things like write best selling books and he plays music and basically exposes Mike and me for the slacker podcasters we are. So I, I do have to say this is when uh, when my when I told my my fourteen year old son that we were going to have Hank Green on, he said the Hank Green. It's the first time he's ever thought I was cool. It's incredible. Yeah, I didn't make him cool, but you do. So he's Hank Green. I'm Tamar Haspel. I'm Michael Grunwald, and this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. This show is going to be a little bit different. 
Um, because usually when we have people on, we ask them questions and they give us answers. But today we're hoping to have some answers to Hank's questions because we are all curious about cell-based meat. Hello, Hank. Hello. Thank you so much for this lovely introduction. Um, I'll just go ahead and put it on all of my websites and business cards. Uh, felt really lovely. So I have a problem which is that I can't um, not do things that I think are bad just because they're bad. Um, whether that's for my health or for the planet, there are some, like, it's just like, I, the, 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 you know, you are, you are in the culture that you are in. And, and also I think that, like, to some extent, I'm, I live in Montana. I live in a place where you absolutely can be vegetarian and vegan without much trouble. But, like, I'm surrounded by people who, like, are not interested in that lifestyle. And, uh, and I recognize that like, they're the, they eat a lot more meat than me. And they're the ones that we really need to get. Just like we need to get the, my neighbors who have big trucks into electric cars, uh, or electric trucks the, the they drive a lot more than me. They burn a lot more gas than me. Uh, and so like my volt isn't doing that much good. It's not, it's not doing much more good than my civic was doing. Whereas their Ford F-250, uh, would do a lot of good if it were an electric my F-250 resembles that remark. <laughs> In my so, defense, we tow boats. We, we don't yeah, have a choice. Exactly. It, it's always been – I'm always afraid of the sort of Pollyanna-ishness of this. Um, but I, my my sort of like go to in a world of a uh, fair amount of doom has been well we've certainly changed things before we used to light our houses with whale oil and coal is better than killing whales well you can say that at least and uh, and solar panels are better than uh, coal but like something might be better than solar panels someday. It's all all uh, an arrow, and we're all trying to make a, a a better world for ourselves and our children. Um, and and when it comes to meat, it just seems impossible to me that people in the future won't look back on the way I eat and think it is disgusting, because it is disgusting. Like it's really like it's awful. It 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 feels in many ways like the most primitive thing that we still do. Uh, and I'm sorry to the people who uh, make meat for a living. Uh, but like it does seem like a thing that in the future we will say, that was a weird way of doing things. And um, and I just wonder how fast we're going to get there. Like, is it – is like my first cell-based chicken nugget a year away? Is my first cell-based chicken breast 10 years away? Like, where are we? When you were saying earlier that you weren't jealous of chicken nuggets, honestly, I'd rather a chicken nugget than a chicken breast most days. So, like, it's a good – a chicken nugget is one of the mankind's greatest achievements. But I'd love to have one that didn't involve a chicken. Sure. And I think so many people are in your camp. And some of the issues that you touched on are things that we have talked about before, um, including we did a whole big Megillah on animal welfare. Um, and, and, you know, I think that you're certainly right in, in many aspects that people will look back on what we're doing now and be revolted, disgusted. Now the question is which aspects of it will revolt <laughs> and disgust people? Because some people are revolted and disgusted by the idea of meat being grown in vats. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> That's funny. That, that doesn't like, I'm a 
a chemist by training once upon a time, that doesn't bother me at all. Like not, nothing about that bugs me. And Mike and I are kind of techno-optimists and, and it doesn't bug us, but it does bug a lot of people. And I want to sort of get to that at the very end because there's, there is this disconnect between technology and food that we run up, get, Mike and I run up against all the time. And I'm sure you do too, because sometimes you, you wade into these things. But let's start maybe with like, where we are with cell-based meat and what the prognosis is. And since Mike is, as we speak, in California yeah, just talking- just ate, ate one. I know he just ate one. That makes him the expert on this podcast. Well, what's funny is I'm actually podcasting from the Better Meat Company, which is a company that was founded by a guy named Paul Shapiro, who is, I should say, an avid Climavores listener. So thanks, Paul. Um, but he's also the author of Clean Meat. He wrote an entire book about cell-based cultivated meat, and his company is not a cell-based or cultivated meat company. He started a fermentation company, which I think does say something. Uh, and, you know, Paul's in a hurry to save the world, right? Agri animal agriculture has taken over a third of it, and he wants to get rid of it fast, and he doesn't think that uh, that cell-based is necessarily the way to do it. I mean, let's, you know, I think to do a little bit of history, the first cell-based burger was unveiled in 2013 by a Dutch scientist, and it was funded by, uh, it was funded by one of the co-founders of Google. It cost $300,000 to make a five-ounce burger. A million dollars a pound is not really the, you know, kind of the prices you're looking for in the supermarket, but it was a real burger. You know, it was, you know, a slaughter-free burger, and it was meat. It wasn't fake meat. It was actually, you know, made from, from animal cells. You know, today, you know, nine years later, Just is actually selling, uh, you know, some some nuggets, some uh, some chicken breast in Singapore, which is the only country that so that I was googling. I was ready. I was going to buy it. Buy the plane ticket first, and you can. <laughs> the, the U.S. has now uh, approved Upside Foods, which is uh, another California company to start uh, to start. They're not ready to sell, but they've got their first regulatory approval. But Singapore, starting in 2020, the only place where you can actually get some of this. But it's still a huge loss leader. Um, all Josh would tell me is that it's still way, considerably north of $100 a pound, better than a million dollars a pound in a decade, but obviously uh, you know, nowhere close to where it needs to get. Well, I have to, I have to say, if you follow that graph down, it's great <laughs> right, news. The trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> if that's a linear graph, we're it's free tomorrow. <laughs> I um, think it's like it's like with broadband though, right? The last yeah, mile no, is exactly. kind of the it's, uh, it's, it's asymptotic. <laughs> it's an ad I was gonna say it's asymptotic. And like I'm yeah. guessing fifty bucks is about as low as we're gonna get. Mm, I don't know. We'll figure it out. There's a knowledge. I, there's always a knowledge curve, and the the you know the 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 question. I mean, I have so many questions. You continue. All right. So let's start at the top, Hank. What kind of questions you got? Well, I think that that's a big one. So when you're talking about like a, a normal piece of technology, your lowest price is going to be the cost of materials. So if you can build a, you know the biggest, most efficient battery like plant in the world, these gigafactories where they're making lithium-ion batteries, you're not going to get cheaper than the cost of the lithium that goes into them and the cobalt that goes into them, et cetera. The thing that goes into cell-based meat, from what I can tell, is what? Sugar? Like what are you what are you feeding the cells? Like it's it's not expensive stuff. 
to feed cells? It's so the growth medium is a combination of some sugars, glucose, um, but the things that are more expensive and harder to source are the amino acids, and you need those for growth. But going back to what you said about um, assuming, you know, you have all these economies of scale and you get closer and closer to the price of the actual ingredients as the cost of the of the product that you're making. One of the things that's interesting about this and prevents it from being sort of an easy, scalable win is that um, bioreactors are really hard to scale. In fact, there was a guy who did a whole analysis of this. He was Those hired. are the fermentation tanks, the, like the, the place where the cells live. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's where the factories. And so this guy whose job it is, is to like talk, is to understand and write about the potential of scalability of technology. And he wrote this whole report and it came out a couple of years ago and made a big splash. And one of the things that he said is that the price of doing this goes down as you scale up to a certain point and then it plateaus, but then it starts to, the price starts to go up again. So if I said that wrong, let me say it right. <laughs> it goes down as you scale up for a little while and then it starts to go up as you scale up because we're basically in unknown territory as far as the big issue here is the size of the reactor and size does apparently matter. This yeah. is what I've been told. It makes sense to me that there are, there are reasons why this the size matters. And well, and I mean, to get like the sort of skis skeeziest possible when we're talking about food and technology is like, what what point are you genetically engineering the meat cells to operate well within the systems for creating cell based meat? And I don't know if that's happening yet. It, it, it's like, it's one thing to say, let's make cell-based meat. It's another thing to be like, and it's genetically modified. And people are like, look, I don't know if you heard, but we're environmentalists. Like, there is so only so much I'm going to deal with. Can you just get me some tofu, please? Like, we've solved this problem well enough for me. Um, and, uh, but like, yeah, I, what what that sounds like to me is is a step like the uh, the thing about these knowledge journeys is that they are always filled with these like things that you hit and you're like we don't know how to solve this problem, but then if there's a reason to solve the problem, you kind of start to figure out ways to solve. It. And when you have hundred dollar per pound meat, and you can go to a restaurant and you can pay a hundred dollars for a burger, and maybe they're you know maybe you know just is losing money on that but like they're getting to a place where there there's an there's an incentive to try and solve these problems and get that price down a little bit and then the, like you you start to uh, have a lot of reason to hire smart people to solve hard problems and you just put your finger on the whole issue here is it's all about to what extent do we trust that people are going to be able to solve these problems that we don't have solutions to right now? Right, right, which, you know, we don't really know. And sometimes these technologies hit a problem that they cannot overcome. It ha it totally happens. No, it's, that's and that's fair. But I guess, I guess my starting point for some of this is that, like, you know, I've got this thing in my pocket that has all human knowledge and <laughs> uh, and that I can, you know, call and video anybody all over the world and take a picture. I mean, uh, you know— People didn't think they were going to have that 20 years ago, and you would have sounded like a crazy person if you if you said that we would. So, I mean, you know, humans, like, 
Meat is a really good example of some things that we're bad at, right? Like we've overrun the planet. We've, you know, deforested, uh, you know, we've lost a third of our forests and three quarters of our wetlands to basically to grow our food. Um, that's bad, but we're kind of good at recognizing it and doing something about it, you know, compared to compared to other species that were capable of these incredible technologies. So I do, when people say like, oh, that's impossible, um, part of what they're saying is like, that's impossible with the stuff we've got now. And that, and that is true. But if you start from the premise that this is a really big problem that we've got to solve, that the food system is a third of our carbon emissions and it's, you know, most of our biodiversity problem, and it's got to get better. Um, and most of the problem is meat. And that we've been, our ancestors started eating meat two million years ago, and we really do seem to have a taste for this animal flesh. It's kind of what, you know, that's when our brains started to get big and our stomachs started to get small, right? Because, uh, you know, we need yeah, and we need yeah, and we needed to sort of figure out how to uh, you know how to find our prey, and we didn't need to digest so much of uh, you know the the vegetables that we had been eating. Um, this is an important problem that we've got to solve, and we're so even like Josh Tetrick will tell you like you know it's really hard. We're not there yet, and he's only seventy percent sure that we're going to get there. But I think the people who say that they're uh, you know, 100% sure that we're not going to get there, um, you know, to take the bioreactor example that Tamar mentioned, it is true um, that I, I saw a 3,500 liter uh, bioreactor yesterday. It was, you know, pretty big. It was maybe 12, 15 feet tall. They need to go to 200,000. That's going to be 70 feet tall. It's a, it's, it's got to get much more sterile. That's going to be very expensive. But they say it doesn't need to be as sterile as, say, you know, a biopharma reactor where you're making stuff that you're, you know, injecting into people. I was just going to bring that up. I take a medicine that's made in one of those bioreactors. Bio I get it injected into my veins every two months. Uh, that it, a, a medicine that is churned out by cells. I don't know what kind of cells, but they're I think they're mammalian. Um, and... Uh, and then they have to like, and then the process of like washing out all the parts that aren't the medicine that I get is extraordinarily complicated, very expensive. It's a super expensive drug. If it's insulin, remember with, you know, it's like insulin, they used to, uh, you know, they used to have to use like hundreds of pig pancreases to, uh, to get a tiny little bit of in insulin. So, you know, they found a better way that saves a lot of pigs. Um, it's and saves a lot of human lives as well. Yeah, and I so I start from the premise that like let's not let's not say that's impossible. Let's sort of like let's figure out what the obstacles are, and the bioreactors are one of them, no question. The media is is another one, even though it's basically just animal feed. Wait, before you go to the media, can I go back to the cells for a second? Because there's a really wonky part of this that's super interesting, and I think that we should put it out there because it's also sort of the crux of one of the problems with scaling up, and that is that we have all of these, just like you mentioned, all of these products and vaccines are one, insulin or another, drugs or another, that are made using this process where cells are put in a tank and then they do something and they basically, they basically poop stuff out. And that's not the word the scientists use, but that's what they do. They don't have buttholes, but they do excrete it. <laughs> they don't have sphincters. And so, and, and so, but they're basically pooping stuff out. And we can do these amazing things. You mentioned genetic modification. We can do these amazing things with yeasts and we can, we can modify them to poop out almost anything, you know, 
And, and it's crazy. But there's a fundamental difference between doing that where what you're harvesting is the poop and doing meat where what you're harvesting is the cells themselves. And you have to get them you have to get them onto a matrix. You have to get them to organize themselves in a way that is meat like. Like no one wants a bunch of like water with animal cells in it. And in, in fairness, that is so what Tamar is saying is absolutely right that it's it's certainly easier to do this fermentation that expresses, you know, the kind of precision fermentation. But for instance, here at the Better Meat Company, um, they are not they are they are using fungi and to make fungi. They are just doing the cells. Now it happens to be fungi divide so much faster than animal cells um, that it's way easier and and uh, you know way more economical right now. But again, it sort of it suggests that it's certainly the problem isn't just that they're using cells rather than expressing proteins with the cells. I mean it's it's doable. It's just not doable at a reasonable cost today. Right. Well, I mean, this brings up a thing. Like, uh, if you can make a fungus make a thing that is that is chicken breast like, which I don't know if, it, if that's impossible, um, th- then you don't. Then you never you never have the incentive to actually continue down the development path of cell based meat. So, it, like, it, if there is really a product, and I've had a couple of fungus based. Uh, yeah, you know, and and the cream cheese. That's I don't remember what, what company it was, but I had some fungus based cream cheese. I was like, this is like the best cream cheese I've ever had. This is Nature's Find, probably. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, it's really good, and they're they're making that from the uh, you know they're using the the extremophiles in the, right the hot springs under Yellowstone National Park, and that stuff grows. Yeah, F- fungus grows really fast. It's much simpler. It's like you know, fungus does fungus stuff, uh, whereas you know the 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 cells in meat are sort of much more, they're finicky and they also like, they kind of want to be part of a multicellular organism because they are in a different way than fungus, even though fungus is also multicellular. And they grow slowly. And that's the thing about it is that if you're trying to grow mammalian cells in a bioreactor, you can't use any of of the contaminant inhibitors that you can use if you're growing a fungus or if you're growing, you know, yeasts that are pooping something valuable. So, so it has to be more sterile. Right. So so the fungus or the yeasts are going to be able to outcompete the contaminants both because they grow so fast and because you can use inhibitors, growth inhibitors. But if you use growth inhibitors in when you're trying to do get the cells, then it inhibits the growth of the cells. And then where does that leave you? And so the sterility issue really comes to the fore. And it sounds like so petty. It's like, no, you can't keep a big bioreactor sterile. But the guy who wrote this report basically said, you can have a big plant or you can have a clean plant. (laughs) But you can't have a big clean plant. And, And it's this huge issue. But like Mike said, and like you said too, you know, here's a problem that people are working on. And when Mike and I have gone back and forth about this, we've talked about it a lot. And I it, like I, my position on it, which is that eventually I think it will happen, but it's going to take a long time. And I am not, I do not have confidence that these problems are going to be solved in the next decade or even two. But then I feel, I feel like I'm the guy from the 1920s who wanted to close the patent office, you know, because everything had been invented. <laughs> and, <laughs> And so it's all a question of how much faith we have in people to solve these problems because we don't have the solutions. 
Well, I, yeah, I also think that the, it's a question of making sure that we're tr- trying to solve the problem in as many ways as possible because we don't know which one the solution is going to be. That's right. But certainly some of the, I mean, obviously, like there are smart people, you know, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, these people are putting, you know, there, there's been billions of dollars investment in these companies, not, you know, from obviously at least some reasonably serious people think that the, you know, include, and Cargill, Tyson, um, you know, companies that think that this is, that this is not insane. Um, and, you know, the fact that I am eating chicken shows that this is, this is doable. The question is, you know, what's going to be the price, you know, what's going to be their price and what's going to be the price of meat? Um, those are, those are questions we don't entirely know. Um, but I guess part of what's behind this is this notion that, like, like yeah, I, I think the the Impossible Burger is great. Um, they're really getting the Impossible Sausage at, at Starbucks. Um, I think some of these fungi companies are doing a really great job. But there's this idea that there's something magic about meat, right? Something that we can't quite explain of that when you bite into it, the, when you cook it, the aromas, that it triggers something in us um, that – just a, enough humans are not going to settle for any substitute for animal flesh. And of course, you know, who knows? These guys might, you know, they can make Hank burgers. They can make, uh, you know, it may turn out that uh, they can make woolly mammoth burgers that might be more delicious, right? This is like the, the cow is a very mature technology, while this stuff, who, know, who knows what, uh, what they can come up with. You can see why there is excitement, particularly when the, the problems are so big and the upside which is, of course, the name of the company that's farthest along, the upside is so enormous. The, but the thing is, I think, I think an important thing to notice is that like a really nice steak is very different from the vast majority of the beef we eat, which happens at fast food restaurants. I think that like the joy that my uh, you know reward receptors bring me when I hit a McDouble is it probably isn't might not be that hard to replicate actually but like the and also the cow is such a mature technology that we're not going to get the price of a mcdouble any lower than it already is but just like when when suddenly solar power became cheaper than you know as when it was being produced than uh fossil fuel power th- there i think there's every opportunity for cell based meat to be cheaper it might not be better but it might be cheaper. And I think that like McDonald's has a lot of incentive to have a 99% 99-cent hamburger and that's kind of impossible right now, but it might become possible in the future again. Right, we we haven't said we haven't discussed the sort of like I mean, I when we th- when you approach the problem, right? It's like, huh, we we'll, we want to make meat, we're going to use the animal cells, we're going to try to do it without without the animal. Um now the animal has obviously a lot of advantages and it's been doing really great and <laughs> they've made a really nice business nice business out of it downside are like one they it's taken over the world you know it's becoming an animal farm but then two and then it's it's burping it's farting it's, but three remember like when you're feeding that animal you have to you're growing its hooves <laughs> you're growing its you know it's uh, you know it's it's respiratory system you're keeping it alive it's pooping and then you know that that creates a problem there's all kinds of th- when it, instead it's like well winston churchill said this in the 1930s he said uh, you know 
he was, I guess, a part-time futurist. And he said, you know, in, in 50 years hence, you know, it's it's impossible to think that we won't be growing the breast and the wing outside of the chicken. And he was like, you know, he was a little premature. But you can see the, this idea that like, wow, what we're doing is incredibly inefficient. We're feeding 40 calories worth of plants to a cow to get one calorie worth of, worth of beef. Um, this is... This is kind of when you talk about like the theoretical possibilities, you can see why this is uh, it's attractive. But the point you bring up, the difference between the steak and and the burger, is important. I think for a couple of reasons. First, that you're totally right that you can do a persuasive burger experience with meat that does not when you don't have the capability to make a steak. But of course, if the goal here is to try and reduce animal suffering and and lessen the impact that climate has, um, from the beef people's perspective, the thing that drives beef demand is the demand for those whole muscle cuts. And so if you can't reproduce the whole muscle cuts, but you can reproduce the burger then you got to ask, okay, well, what happens? Does the herd shrink um, if there's still the same demand for whole muscle cuts? Do we just export the ground beef, which is a byproduct, basically? Does it get cheaper overseas? Do we hook people in other countries on cheap burgers? Um, it's hard to see how that all ripples through. But the difference between whole muscle and burger is an important distinction here. But that's but that's the use case, right? That's the argument for cell base is that like plant-based, you've already seen the impossible whopper is a whopper, right? And that and and the impossible nuggets are nuggets. Um and like those homogenous, you know, the, the ground cuts. Yeah, it was it was already it was already a meat sponge. Now it's just a non-meat sponge. <laughs> the head of that one the one of the top People at Rebellious Food, which makes nuggets. She went. She once told me she was like, ah, "The nuggets just a vehicle for sauce, <laughs> right?" And and it's not. It's not that cell based. The the argument against plant based is that it's going to be really hard to turn plants into those whole muscle cuts. But if you can figure out how to do cell based meat at, at cost, you can make burger. You can make foie gras just about as easily as you can make as you can make a, a burger, right? You can make suit and sushi, which is actually you know the fish are not as it's fish cells are not as cheap as to you know have them replicate as fungal cells but they're not as hard as animal cells um you know you can make a sushi which is obviously a really high-end product as opposed you know just as easily as you can make a tilapia so i do think that's that's why people are excited about this stuff not because they want to commit to a 20-year science project but you just push the challenge out that much farther because we all know that the burger and the um, you know the nuggets those those are the things that cell-based meat is going to be able to do well before it can do the steak or the whole muscle. And now if we're saying, well, this is really valuable because it can do the steak or whole muscle. Not to the ex- there's not as much delta for cell-based meat, the the sort of difficulty of doing the whole whole muscle versus the uh, versus the ground beef as there is for plant meat. Here's here's another thing though. I think that uh, that a steak is a, is a psychological idea. Like a steak is an idea. Oh, it's it's also food, but it's mostly an idea. I live in Montana, where the 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 idea of 
people who have been raised around cattle, they like have that's part of their heritage. It's part of their world. And but even if you're not, it's part of your heritage. You watch Yellowstone. You know, you like you. This is part of America. Is and so there's a lot of people who eat steak because it's because of the idea of steak. And so even if you can make a steak, that's hard to get over. So I think that. So here's. Economists and people who understand the meat industry tell me if I'm wrong. But I think that if you take the the ground beef out of the equation, if you say like that product is a, a lot cheaper now, you can't sell that for as high a price, either because you have to export it and sell it at a, or because people aren't buying it as much, so you have to compete with the price of something else. The price of the steak goes up. So like no matter like and 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 when the price of something goes up, the demand does go down. Now I think people will still eat steaks, but I think that they will eat them as like a you know an event. And so the more that we can eventize uh, whole cuts of whole whole muscle cuts, the better. So I, I I do see sort of like heading in that direction. But I think it's important to note that even if you can make a perfect steak out of cells, there are going to be for a long time, people who want to be a part of the legacy of cattle and who, who like, who feel that that, like, and, and so, like, what we want is for that to be a niche product. We're not going to make it go away, but we want it to be a niche product that you get sometimes. I don't know. I mean, I, I th- certainly to some extent, I guess we're arguing about at the margins how much, but I think, um, you know, ranching is already a really tough business. Like, being, running a slaughterhouse, you know, cartel that seems to be a really good business um and if you have like carbon carbon markets that are paying people to you know rewild ranches um and that's paying better than than ranching i'm not sure how how tied they're going to be to their you know i don't think that the ranchers necessarily will be but i think that yeah i think that they and and what you what you would have then is you have a 150 dollars steak and people would eat 150 dollars steaks but they just wouldn't you wouldn't go buy one and make one every night like it's wild to me. It's wild to me. I can make a steak for dinner every night. I guess I would never think to do it, but you could absolutely do it. They're not that expensive. You can do it. No, it's true. And and I look. I and and I think there's like these guys who are trying to do this. You know, they're they're starting from the idea that like, look, if we can match the the taste and the price, then mm-hmm. you know maybe not everybody is going to eat it, but yeah. like that's gonna that's gonna change the world. And mm-hmm. and I will say what was really shocking, particularly the fried chicken that I ate at Just, <laughs> it 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 felt it, the the mouth feel felt like chicken. I will say the chicken breast wasn't quite there. It like it it was actually kind of a cool mouth feel, but it it was like a little more it didn't have that kind of bounce, you know, that kind of stuck stick in your teeth, the kind of chew. It, it was a little more like kind of soft and custardy. Um but oh there's something that goes <laughs> off in our brain when you when you eat meat that's real meat, I think. And this is why you know I'm doing a, a show called Climabores and yeah. I still eat I still eat chicken and pork um, because there's something about that that just seems hardwired in us um, mm-hmm. that we really like it and that these guys feel like the only way to really replicate that is by actually, you know, growing meat, you know? Yeah. Because it is meat. It's it's funny that the fried chicken, I was sort of like, is this a, is this a breast or a thigh? It was kind of like, Huh? Huh? It's just, it's just you know, it's, it's, it's this. It's a breast and a thigh. So when it comes to chicken, like, so one of the things I've heard is that chicken, in terms of climate, isn't actually that big of a concern. Like, chicken's a pretty efficient way to make protein. Beef, super is not. In a lot of ways, beef is kind of the worst thing to do. 
Um, is there a very clear, like, can we calculate the very clear benefit of lab-based versus not, versus, like, you know, a chicken? To some extent, we, we certainly can. Um, but we don't, well, on the one end, on the animal end, we can quantify what the impact is. And you're totally right that chicken and pork come in at basically one-tenth of the climate impact of cattle. So cell-based meat is only going to be a climate win if it replaces beef. Although, remember, it's still it's still five times, like chicken and pork are still five times the climate impact of beans or lentils, right? So it's, Right, right. So let's put that in perspective. It's, there, it's, if, if it wasn't that beef was so unbelievably horrible, we'd say that chicken and pork was a pretty big problem too, not to mention all the, the manure and the, you know, the, the mess that they make. Given what we know and given what people are projecting about the cell-based technology, the, the estimates I've seen have been that, okay, if it gets super efficient, we can get a calorie of edible meat out for every three or four calories we put in. Now, that's better than chicken, which is probably six or seven. Um, but, of course, that doesn't count all the energy that goes into building these things, maintaining them, the energy that goes into the system. So, we, I think we can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that it will be better than beef, but that's only because beef is so outrageously bad. <laughs> and and I, my bet is that from a climate point of view, it won't be better than pork or chicken. Um, but of course, then there are the animal welfare issues that play into that as well. First of all, I think I think it's still going to be a, a little. I mean, we're in a hypothetical world, so we'll see how this stuff goes. Um, but you know, chickens and pork, from a climate perspective, are still pretty bad. And 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 the reason they're not way worse is because of the way you know the chicken technology we have today, um, which is so grotesque. Um, which you know, where we grow these things in in six weeks, and they're eating all day long, and they're so fat that their legs break, and uh, you know they're so breast heavy they top, topple over. Hank, Hank, have have you ever come face to face with a broiler chicken? I just want to ask him this: have like you, a, a a living broiler chicken? Yeah. Have you ever interacted with them? No, I've only ever interacted with uh, more heritage breeds. Yeah, no, they're it's not pretty. So, so it's not clear that there is a real movement to try to you know reduce some of the you know horrible ways these are treated, which is I think we'd all agree is kind of good. But that's going to make you know the chicken technology a little bit less efficient and the the competition a little bit fairer for. Uh, and it's the same on price, right? As the you know the more the more climate policy changes, the more these other antiquated meat technologies have to sort of pay for their economic externalities and in particularly their environmental externalities, you know, the better the economic and environmental case is going to be for the alternatives. Right. And I think that there's also like, it, uh, there just feels like there's more movement. Like we've been optimizing chicken efficiency for, you know, thousands of years, and we've been trying to optimize cell-based meat efficiency for Seven seconds, yeah. For for ten, um, so the 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 well, it also I think it also does depend on whether or not um, a mass market cell based product would also be genetically modified, because I think that there's lots of efficiencies that you might get if you know you start using some of the power that we have to control biology now that we didn't have 
even five years ago. I talked to the head of the lab at uh, at Just, and he was like, you know, they don't they don't even want to talk about it because people are, you know, some people are freaked out enough about. Yeah, because the they idea. think that that's what this means. They think it's the same thing. Like, how could you do a genetic? How could you do cell based meat without genetic modification? But right now, they want to be like, no, we're not doing that. But he told me it's not like the focus of their work. But they're looking at it. They're they're keeping their options open. And and yeah, it's since if Tyson's interested in it, you know, Tyson's not going to have any problem with <laughs> genetic modification. We meant we've sort of mentioned three problems, right? One is one is the. Uh, you know, one is the bioreactors, one is the media, and then there's the sort of cultural problem of, you know, are people going to eat this stuff? But then Tamar sort of alluded to this idea of cell density. We've got to get this stuff to grow really fast um, and be able to be in a really crowded fermenter. Um, and uh, and that's something that, you know, we do know that that's sort of something that genetic modification seems to be kind of helpful with, um, but nobody wants to say it out loud. <laughs> Here's the question then. And Hank, you you started off early in the show talking about genetic modification and, and the possibility that that could make this whole thing work better. Um, but, you know, we're at this sort of crossroads with food where lots and lots of people are trying to bring technological solutions to bear on this problem of climate. Um, and But eaters are used to people bringing technological solutions to the problem of how to get people to buy and eat more food. And so, and, and so we have associated, you know, processing and technology with crap because that's what it's been used to make. And so I understand why people balk at this idea of applying technology to the problem. And but here they're using technology completely different. Pat Brown, as you know, Mike was was talking to me earlier, he really does want to save the world. He's not in it to, you know, sell people more food that's bad for them. He wants to accomplish something good. But is this I want my food to be natural sentiment, which makes a lot of sense in a lot of contexts, is that going to be a huge barrier to acceptance of this, whether or not it's genetically modified? And Hank, you hear from all kinds of people. What's your sense? Oh, yeah. I, th I think so. I think specifically because the people who can pay more are more worried. So like there's a there's a there's always been a, a class component to, you know, like white bread you hear the words and like it it means something you know white bread america means something and you know what it means and like we don't maybe want to interface with it and and, and like you know i've seen parents judge other parents for feeding their children mcdonald's in ways that make me very uncomfortable and that seem very classist to me and um and at the same time like i don't want to stuff my child full of mcdonald's like i know what's up um in order to sell someone a more expensive product, you have to promise them, you know, various values. And so you can't come in and say, this is better because it's it's delicious, it's healthy, and no animals died. You can do that. But if you also, like, sort of tap into some previous, you know— you know, the, the the reality that processing does make food less healthy, it does make you eat more of it— there's like well-established research about that. Um, you can't you can't really be in that space at first, and so it has to sort of start out a luxury product, and so it has to have and luxury products have to have everything, including the halo. So, 
Um, so that's tricky. And then, w- I, and I think that like when you end up in a mass market world, then you know people are not going to care as long as it's healthy, as long as it's not like actually like as long as it's not dangerous. They're not going to care about you know how the how the product was made or sort of the the more uh, you know every halo that you can sort of ascribe to it. It's and this is actually I think a thing to to reckon with. Just like you know as we look at how to to make cell based meats in different more efficient ways. There's lots of ways to tweak it to make it more efficient and to like, you know, bring like work on the knowledge curve. You also are going to want to market it. And there's various ways to market food. One of them is that it's healthy and one of them is that it's delicious. And so like what's the world where the 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 companies making the cell-based meat are more focused on how good it tastes. And is there is there a world where like you cross that line, just like you could cross the price line, you cross the deliciousness line and cell-based meat actually tastes better. But you you know how to make things taste better. It's to make them worse for you. And things that taste better, you eat more of. And, and that's worse for you. So you have these meals like we have at McDonald's where we're getting, you know, 1,500 calories at a go. And uh, and because there's like glucose in the bun, and it's just delicious. It's like everything is perfectly designed for me to like eat this bite, drink this coke, eat this bite, drink this coke, eat the and like it's just a you know a, a dopamine fest in perpetuity. That's that's the way they like it. And and so like I think like that's not any what anybody's thinking about yet. But I think there's a reality where cell based meat could be tastier. But in just in and of itself being tastier makes it worse for you. Just like Oreos are like would be you would eat fewer of them if they didn't taste as good. Well, this is exactly what these like you know, I talked to some of these scientists at Just and it's and and the and the food guys, they're chefs. And it's really this like they're kind of turning the knobs constantly. Like, you know, I, I when I when I my chicken wasn't bouncy enough and I asked him about that and he's like yeah I've been I've been pushing the scientist guys to to put in more fat um but then the nutrition the nutrition people don't want that um it's uh you know it really is but you know they're they're fine tuning a, a technology and as as we've discussed it's like there's there's no reason to think that the technology can't get better and like generally things that get tastier get less nutritious but who knows what they're going to be able to fortify this stuff with and you know people want protein they can make it with protein oh, they uh, no, no. Know. it's it gets worse when it's better that's the thing about food. I eat more of it when it tastes good. So, Hank, you have to convince Mike of this because I have tried and failed. <laughs> because, the, you know, when we were talking about plant-based meats versus real meats, Mike is convinced that they can make it both taste better and be better for you. And I'm kind of convinced that, no, they can't. But again, that makes me the the patent office guy <laughs> from 1920. Well, this is, this is the thing. Like, it, it, you can totally have those things be different things if they aren't the same thing. And I think that they might be the same thing. I think that it might be the case. And, I, like, I'm just going off of my – like, I don't think that – processed food is worse for you because it has more sodium or because it has more fat. I think that processed food is worse for you because you eat more. I think that paper, like like potato chips are worse for you than potatoes, not because of the vegetable oil, but because they taste better. And and so like you have to interface with that. And, and so in order to make something taste better and be better for you, you have to make people somehow want to eat less of it or 
And so it's like the idea that it's all just like a balance of nutrients thing, there is something to that, that like, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting all the vitamins and minerals. But the, but I think an underappreciated, and like this proves out in the research, an underappreciated part of what makes something unhealthy is that it it tricks you into eating a lot of it by by tasting good and you want to buy more of it. And that isn't an, there's an economic incentive for the company to make the best Cool Ranch Dorito. And and like there's an incentive to you to eat the best Cool Ranch Dorito because it's very good. Hank, I am totally torn between wishing that you had arrived at these conclusions by reading my columns, but being delighted that somebody really smart has come to the same conclusions I have by looking at the evidence. Well, I'll just say that these would these would be great problems to have. Right? I agree with you. Like, what are we going to do? This stuff is too tasty. Everybody yeah. wants it. I mean, like, I think I th- and I think Hank, you raised a really good question about this idea. And Tamara, you mentioned it too, this question about biotechnology and like, are people are people going to be comfortable with it? You know, I think on a policy level, I worry about it too. Right now, there's a conference going on in, in Montreal about biodiversity. And I'm sorry, there's like a no, you know, they're talking, you know, trophy hunting this and climate change that. We know why, we know why there's a biodiversity problem. It's because we've turned half the half the planet into agriculture and we've, you know, taken away, taken away the, their homes. And yet there's, you know, of their 24 action items, there's one about biotechnology. And you know what the action item is? We're going to manage the risks. You know, it's like it's a problem to be defended against, not an opportunity to fixing these problems. And I do think, you know, at the policy level and probably even at the consumer level as well, there is going to have to be a change. Um, and and I, I agree it's hard. But again, is it impossible? I mean, you know, gay marriage seemed crazy a, a few years ago, too. <laughs> it's and, a different and, kind and, of technology. <laughs> um. Right. The cell phone and gay marriage. I, I just can't go there with those analogies. Things Things change is all I'm saying. <laughs> I can get there with with the cell phone analogy for sure, uh, especially when it comes to biodiversity and it comes to animal welfare and it comes to the uh, the climate. I think all of those things are well served by cell based meat, but I think that big transitions like this really like the thing that makes them happen is when the product is better. And what is a pr- what does a better food product look like if you're you know the kind of high class buyer that goes to the, the the Whole Foods and and you know that that's about halos. It's about like make me feel good about my purchase. But then when it moves be, beyond there, um, it becomes like the you know the Hummer EV, where it's like I will buy an EV as long as it could totally kill a pedestrian. <laughs> um, and 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 I think that there's a you know th- there's probably going to be an analogy there where people end up eating more cell based meat because they like it more and it's cheaper. Um, and it really is kind of has to be both of those things. And I think that, the, like, I think that that's my sense, having talked to you and, and read a little bit about this, this, is that, like, there's a there there. Uh, that that might be five, it's not going to be five. It might be 10 years, it might be 50 years. But, there, but like, uh, and in terms of human health, the good news is that there will probably be other tools with which to handle that. And another thing is that, like, the the biggest concerns about human health aren't really about food they're about access to health and they're about having the space in your life to be a healthy person they're about having the money to be a healthier person they're about having access to healthcare and 
you know, so so to sort of talk about this, like I think that it's might maybe a little iffy to talk about this from a from a if we make more delicious meat, will people you know be less healthy? When in reality, we see a really tight correlation between inequality and like wealth inequality and health inequality. Like those things are really closely related. Would you come on and do a whole episode about this because it's a fascinating topic, and I think that there are there are some misconceptions out there in the world about it. But um, I think the basic I think sort of what I'm taking away from some of the things you just said is I think this sort of fundamental truth about climate-saving food. It's not going to save the climate unless it's really bad for us and we eat a lot of it. <laughs> well, unless people like it. But that's the whole point, that people, when it's something that people like, they eat a lot of it. And that's the only way the climate's going to be saved. So it's like we have to pick. <laughs> it's us or the planet. I come back to these like hundreds of millions of people in the like Bangladeshi floodplain who are kind of like, are you really worried about whether cell-based meat is? Well, but I, I you know, I, it, it does feel feel to me like it isn't just a food problem. I think that it is a economic problem. I think that we like we need to interface with with health um not by limiting what people can eat, um, not by controlling what people can eat, not by sort of deciding what's healthy for people, but by looking at what actually leads to healthy outcomes, which is a more equal society. Um, and which is, you know, I'm not saying that's easy to get to either. Like, if there's a problem harder than cell-based meat, it's equality. Well, and there's and there's going to be a cultural, you know, and there's going to be some cultural questions that you've gotten at. And hopefully, I think the, you know, as, as this stuff, I mean, obviously, it couldn't be more fringe right now, right? It's like, you know— 12 rich people in Singapore have eaten have eaten this stuff plus me <laughs> um, and uh, and you know but but you know I would bet in a and we talked about like you know what we were sort of making bets tomorrow and I before this like you know is this gonna you know when is this stuff gonna go mainstream in a few years you're gonna start to see not not uh you know you're not gonna get a cell-based burger at, at uh, in, even at Whole Foods but you'll start to see there are companies like mission barns um, that are not making you know entire they're just making cell-based fat. Um, and you'll see that in a plant-based burger. And the the hope is that as this becomes normalized, you know, it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of real meat. Oh, that's kind of not so gross. Oh, it tastes good. Um, and people aren't keeling over. Um, that you can start to move the needle, um, hopefully far enough to start having these real questions that Hank is raising about, you know, inequality and who gets access to it and is it going to be good for us in the long run? Should we all look into our crystal balls and see what we think is the future of of cell-based meat is? You first, Hank. Oh gosh. Well, look, I think that I'm going to eat be in cell-based nuggets um with a, by, by 2030. Um and I think I'm going to love them. And but but already I'm eating fungus-based nuggets and they're they're pretty good. Um, but I think I think that the uh, the point at which meat becomes quite niche, um, I don't know. I wouldn't. I I would. I could see that by the end of the 2030s. And I hope. I very much hope to. How about you, Tamar? So I would love to see this sector succeed. And one of the things that really bothers me is that there's so many people rooting against it because they don't like the ickiness of it. And um, I'm totally rooting for it, but I'm afraid I am not 
as optimistic. And I don't think there are going to be mainstream affordable nuggets by 2030. Um, There might be by 2040. I I think it's going to take a couple of decades for this technology to improve to the point where where we have those available to most people out in the world. Now, I think Mike's point about these hybrid products with, you know, some plant-based, some fungus-based, some cell-based, that's that those we could see. But as far as this technology as it stands, I think we're at least a couple decades away. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, it is ultimately, as Hank keeps saying, it's a technological problem, right? The We talked about how the ASPCA was was founded in the late 19th century to get better treatment of horse, carriage horses, um, you know, and they wanted, you know, shorter working hours for the horses and more watering stations. And then Henry Ford solved the problem, right? And he didn't, he didn't give a rat's ass about horses. Um, and so I do think, like, it's not going to be, you know, Veganuary or Meatless Mondays. Is that, that uh, how you pronounce it? <laughs> it's called it's called Veganuary. <laughs> See, but that sounds dirty. <laughs> is it GIF or GIF? I don't know. Um, you know, so I think this is this is the hope. This and and plant based and fungus based, and I do think by. 2030, you will start to see the the needle move on this stuff. Um, not, I mean, look, right now, even plant-based is less than 1%. Um, so it's still just a rounding error. And it's crazy to think that, you know, this stuff isn't, you know, cell-based in particular is not going to be 10% in, uh, in 2030. But I think you will start to see it not just in like one restaurant in Singapore. And certainly the blended products, um, I think, are are going to be a thing. And yeah, ultimately... I think this is where this is where we're going. I mean, uh, we're going towards a a different meat system. Whereas Hank Hank said, like animal actual animal flesh is just going to be a sort of you know a, a rarefied delicacy. That's by t- by twenty fifty. I think that has to happen, and we're going to need the leapfrog technologies as billions of people in the developing world escape poverty. And you know, the first thing you do when you start having more money as you start eating more meat um there's you know we better come up with a with alternative solutions or else we're really screwed all right so i say we book a climb of wars 8 years from now 2030 we we try and convince hank to come back and i'll just be eating my nuggets and we'll see who is closest so I mean, we're so lucky to have had Hank on this to talk about it. I mean, it's like he picked the perfect topic with the perfect guest. It's just uh, we're we're really lucky to have yeah. had you grace our our humble little show. I just show. want to keep learning more about it. It's so cool. And um, hats off to all the people who are feeding you uh, feeding you fake meat, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming, Hank. It's a, been great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's a great conversation. So that was super fun, but I'm not sure I'm enthusiastic about having guests who are funnier than we are. <laughs> no. And about 14 times better than us on, at the microphone. He's just amazing. I think we should have him every week. We can change the show to Climavores with Hank Green. All right. I'm in. <laughs> I mean, is, is can we get Hank in? I mean, he, he doesn't have anything better to do, does he? Yeah. Yeah. 
Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we're planning some mailbag episodes to address your questions so we want to know what they are. Give us a call at 508-377-3449 or drop us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is the managing producer, and Dalvin Abouage is the associate producer. Engineering by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. If you like what you hear, if you want Hank Green on every week, um, I think the best way to do it is to spread the word. Give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us on Spotify. Send an email to Hank. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if you have anybody else in your life who you think would like to hear great guests like this, tell them about it. Okay, chances are we're going to be Hankless next week, but we're going to do our damnedest to be interesting anyway. So tune in. Tune in.